So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading from verses 1 to 12. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, And last of all, he appeared to me also as one to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Mind the gap, mind the gap. Um, That iconic phrase that if you've ever been on the London Underground, uh, you'll have heard those words as the train pulled into the station. Mind the gap, mind that place between the train and the platform. Mind the gap. Mind that place between where you are and where you want to be. Mind the gap. Maybe you, like me, can recognise there there are lots of disconnects, perhaps between this place and that, where you are and where you want to be. Mind the gap. Maybe the gap is between our dreams of what might have been and the reality of what is in our lives. Mind the gap. The gap might be uh, the potential that we see in somebody close to us and then the dubious choices that we see that they're making. Maybe the gap is between what we know of the character of God and then what we see of the character of ourselves or other Christians. Mind the gap. The gap between hope and disappointment. Where are those places in our lives? What are the things that we hoped for deeply and have been truly disappointed by when it just doesn't turn out as we expect? Where is that gap between hope and disappointment in our lives? It might be in a relationship that perhaps you've invested in a lot and it's just not lived up to what you hoped it might be. Or maybe it's to do with uh, your children or another family member. Um, Or it might be something to do with your job or your studies where your hope turned into disappointment. Sometimes too we can be so overwhelmed by disappointment that we lose sight of hope. And I think that's something that we all live with. We live this tightrope between hope and disappointment. And there's this gap in the middle and our human nature convinces us that we need to fill this gap between our hopes and then the disappointments 
Sometimes we're so overwhelmed by the disappointment that we lose sight of hope completely. And what we do is we try and jam that gap full of stuff to stop us feeling so bad, to stop us feeling so downright disappointed. Uh, Krish Kandia, who you've just heard mentioned in his book Paradoxology, points out that our favourite thing that we like to fill the gap with is consumerism, is shopping. Consumerism tries to convince us that this gap in our lives, this gap between all our hopes and our disappointments can be filled by stuff. And I have, I have to confess, had the odd two minutes or perhaps a few more minutes in my life where I've been stood in a shop or I've been bidding on eBay, like to do that, uh, where I have been genuinely convinced, I truly believe that actually buying that pair of shoes or that dress will make my life complete. I don't know whether anybody resonates with that or is it just me? Yeah, somebody at the nine o'clock came up and the most unlikely person and said that they confessed they had an obsession with very nice Italian shoes at that moment. And that's what our, the biggest brands around us try and convince us, don't they? Uh, they try and convince us that buying their stuff will change our lives uh, with slogans like L'Oreal, because you're worth it. Or uh, MasterCard, there are some things that money can't buy, but for everything else there is... Come on, wake up. There's some things that money can't buy, but for everything else there is MasterCard. Absolutely. And of course, if we follow McDonald's uh, slogan, then when we eat their burgers every day, we'll be loving it, won't we? Or perhaps not. Um, We're scared of this gap, this disconnect between hope and disappointments. And so we just try and jam it full of stuff. We try and jam it full of stuff. And we even sometimes bring this same consumerist attitude uh, to how we think about church. We even say, uh, don't we, we're going church shopping. Maybe you're a student or you've been a student. You remember that time where you went church shopping to try and look for the perfect church to fill the gap. We review uh, church and the services that we go to using consumerist language. So what did you get out of that service? Uh, Is it working for you? How did it make you feel? Uh, Bill Hybels, a big church leader in America, he's not big, his church is big, Uh, in America, uh, describes church working at its best like this. There is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opened its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. Whatever the capacity for for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and for wholeness. Sounds amazing. And sometimes I know we have that experience of church ourselves. But ultimately, we also know that church is not always like that. It can leave us feeling disappointed. This is the family of God. It's the bride of Christ. It's the body of Christ. It should be a place of refuge and growth and worship and love. It should be a place where we see the kingdom of God coming radically in this age. But there's so often this gap between the promise of what we believe the church can and should be and the reality of what we discover it is really like. 
it can all be a bit of a letdown. But actually, I wonder if there is something good about hope and about disappointment both being present in our lives. Help helps us to keep going. It drives us, doesn't it, to make the world a better place. And disappointment, when it happens, makes it clear to us that we're made for a better world. Hope helps us to keep going, and disappointment makes it clear we're made for a better world. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food, he says. If I find in myself a desire which no experience of this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And I think this is where the Corinthian church had found itself. The Corinthian paradox is that Christians there are living in this disconnect between their hope for the future, their hope for the present, and the disappointments that they find between what church is and what church was meant to be. There's a gap they're experiencing between what they know of the character of God and what they know Jesus has done for them and the character of his people living in their community. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying the resurrection of Jesus is vital here. The Corinthian church was a large gathering of people. Uh, There were loads of new Christians daily uh, joining this new church. But ultimately, as you read through uh, Paul's first uh, letter to the Corinthian church, we find that there are all sorts of issues coming up for them. There were loads of cliques forming. Uh, At the fellowship meals that the church had, the richer people were sticking together and they were sidelining uh, those who were poorer. It was a church that appeared to lack discipline, uh, with people having some pretty dodgy morals. You can read some quite fantastic uh, parts about that uh, through 1 Corinthians, and some equally dodgy doctrine. Uh, Some of the leaders really lacked humility. In what should have been a thriving and exciting and new church, uh, visited by the very people who had been with the risen Lord Jesus, there was an obvious gap appearing between the promise of what the church could be and should be and the reality of what it actually was. And throughout 1 Corinthians, we find Paul challenging those Christians in that church about various aspects of their life together, you know, their morals and their doctrine, uh, and how that is holding back the church. And he's saying that one of the major problems is their view of the resurrection, And that's where we get to in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, where Paul says this. If it is preached that Christ had been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some Christians in Corinth are asserting that there is no resurrection of the dead. But Paul is saying belief in the resurrection is vital. And it's not just about Jesus' resurrection. But for all who die believing and trusting in Jesus, resurrection is fundamental to our faith as a church. It gives us hope. It reminds us that even through the disappointments of this world, there is a future. There is a future hope with God. 
You see, if the resurrection uh, was put to bed with Jesus, if God did everything on the cross and through the empty tomb, and that was it, this is going to start sounding heretical, but stick with me. Um, If that was resurrection, signed, sealed, and delivered, then we get this theology which teaches that, yes, Jesus has won the victory on the cross and through his resurrection. And we're to live in and claim the fullness of life that Christ has bought for us. All good. We're with you up to this point. But then if we keep going down the line in this theology, then it becomes all about now. It's all about fullness of life, claiming the victory that Christ has won for you purely now. It's all about uh, poverty and illness. It's about Jesus having, having the victory over poverty and illness, over failure and disappointment. And that's where we see what we call the prosperity gospel creeping in. The prosperity gospel teaches how all the riches of God are available to us in the present now, if you have enough faith. If you have enough faith, uh, then you'll be blessed financially or with children, or with success. Uh, Everything will be good. You'll have a lovely home. We can find wholeness. We can find fullness of life, prosperity in Jesus now. And that's lovely, isn't it? We'd all like that to some degree. But this theology uh, doesn't take into account at all that we live still in a suffering and a broken world. This world is filled with disease and injustice and poverty and relationship breakdown. It denies any future hope of resurrection for those who believe and trust in Jesus, the theology does. It says now is all there is. And that belief is at odds with what Jesus taught through the Gospels and also what Paul is saying through the rest of the New Testament. In Romans 8, verse 20 to 23, Paul uses an analogy of labor pains to explain this now and not yet, as he's telling the church in Rome this. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pain of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. It's about the now and the not yet. When I was in the throes of labor, and I'm not going to explain the throes of my labor, you'll be pleased to know. You can ask me afterwards if you want. Uh, When I was in the throes of labor, giving birth uh, to my three children, I'd be absolutely gutted if somebody had come up to me and said, this is it. This is it. This is what it was all about. You know, this is what you went to those joyous NCT classes for, just this moment to enjoy the agony of labor. It would be completely ridiculous because everybody knows that the agony of childbirth is only worth it because of the new life that comes at the end of it. You know it's coming, so you can bear the pain in the now. And the agony and joy of this life, the hopes and the disappointments that we all face, the groans of the whole of creation can be lived through because we're waiting eagerly for our inheritance, the redemption, the resurrection of our bodies. And that is why Paul is calling the Corinthian church back to the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 12. He's saying, church, listen up. 
I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. By this gospel you are saved. This is the truth. This is your reality and your hope, nothing else. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and on the third day he rose again. And then he appeared to over 500 witnesses and he goes on to tell, tell them who all those witnesses were. And he's saying, look, Jesus' death and resurrection was a witness and historic event. And it was unlike the thousands of other crucifixions that happened on those roads leading up to Jerusalem at the time. Why? Because Jesus was the only one who rose from the dead. Paul is saying you need to believe and get your head around the resurrection because it's the key to living as people, as the people filled with hope and love in a hopeless and loveless world. The resurrection is the guarantee that Jesus did himself take upon himself on the cross all our sins and brokenness. Jesus' resurrection, witnessed by hundreds of, of people, is the proof that we need that God does indeed have the power over death to bring about our resurrection as well. The resurrection reminds us that there is a life beyond now, beyond shopping and achieving, beyond holidays and family, beyond relationships, beyond guilt of what you have or have not done, beyond joy, beyond disappointment, beyond heartache. We are broken, aren't we? We're all in need of forgiveness, in need of being put back together again, in need of healing. And Josh reminded us uh, last week, if you were here, that through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we have been saved. And we are being saved, and we will be saved. It's about what Jesus has done and what Jesus continues to do and what Jesus will do. It's about the now and the not yet. We're being restored and daily uh, God is working this out in us as, as his disciples and we'll continue to be restored until we enjoy resurrection life with Jesus and beyond. A few years ago, uh, John and I bought a house uh, in Devon. It was the first house uh, that we ever owned. Uh, and it was a pretty rundown house, which is the reason that we bought it, because uh, we could afford it. And we made great plans for this house. Uh, we had them all drawn up, and we employed a builder. Uh, and then we went back to where we lived and left the builders to get on with it. Uh, but I remember the day that we went down to Devon uh, to see how things were coming along. And we went in, and even though I knew uh, that walls had to be ripped out, uh, I was rather surprised by the carnage that met me. And there's a picture of that. I don't know whether you can see that, uh, that met me. Maybe some of you are feeling that's a familiar sight to you as well. Um, what had been four rooms uh, was uh, just a whole pile of smashed up rubble, brokenness everywhere. There were holes literally on the outside of the house. You could have just gone out and had a nice uh, time out side by sitting in the kitchen um, and the, there were poles everywhere like the one on the screen uh, the scaffolding poles that were holding up the ceiling and the upstairs of the house it looked horrendous it was full of smashed up broken bits of rubble and I could have thought well that's a complete shocker isn't it it's the, it's the right disappointment that is that's not what I expected to find but I didn't why because I knew the plans I knew that we were working towards the restoration of that house. We were in the now, 
but we were not yet at the not yet. We were in the now, but there was still the not yet. And some Corinthian Christians have begun to believe that Jesus simply died and rose again so that they could have fullness of life now. And yet they found that things weren't always as rosy as they expected. Things weren't going well. Their lives and the church continued to be broken and messy. And the kingdom of God wasn't always visible in their community. And their mission didn't result in in conversions all the time. Uh, And people continued to to hurt each other. And they were daily facing lots of disappointment and not much hope. And so Paul is speaking into this in this passage and reminded them, Yes, it is about now, about living in the fullness of life that Jesus has won for you on the cross. But it's also about the not yet, about looking forward to the hope of a future beyond the present, remembering the plans and purposes that God has for you, remembering that the best is yet to come. We're working towards our future restoration. And I don't know about you, but I think that can affect my whole outlook on life, my faith in the church. It reminds me that whatever is happening now, there is a not yet. The bit that we see, God can see far more than that. It reminds me that God can see the bigger picture, that God is sovereign, that there is a hope and a future, and that he is Lord of all. And for the church, our focus shouldn't be on us being like a a triage or a trauma center, fighting those short-term battles, patching people up, sending them out, or, 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 or getting all hit up and shouting loudly about whatever the latest moral issue is, whether it's the divorce rate or abortion or something like that. We should see ourselves rather as a place which is more like a chronic disease care center. We're working towards this long-term vision, worshipping God with our whole lives, stepping out radically as his disciples now, but also speaking radically into the world about different long-term situations, such as overpopulation or the refugee crisis or the destruction of the environment, about injustice. So what does this look like for us here at P's and G's? At P's and G's, we're called to be a church who doesn't just do soul food on a Saturday night, but we're called to lobby the council over how they're dealing with social problems uh, that create the issue of homelessness and poverty in the city of Edinburgh. We're not called just to do B's and T's, our babies and toddlers group, on a Thursday but we're about helping parents to think about what it means to bring up children in the 21st century. We're about walking alongside new parents, showing them love and care, giving them a place of belonging. We're called not just to put on alpha, but it's about you and I and the person either side of you making a difference in your workplace, in your families, in your communities, with your neighbours, watching out for folk, those people who are struggling in life, practically loving people, being the person who brings in the cake just because or is the one who asks everybody how their weekend's been, showing the love and the hope of Jesus every day. 
At P's and G's, we don't just financially support our mission partners around the, the world, but we actually do something to support them. We lobby governments. We work for justice uh, for those who are oppressed. We don't just hand over cash. This is not something either that is just owned by the staff or the clergy of this church. But this is what we're all called to do and to be. Whoever we are and wherever God has placed us, we're all called to be in the now and the not yet. We're called to be now and not yet people, to live out the resurrection of Jesus where we are, but also to bring his love and his life and his hope into the disappointment of this world too. We're called to mind the gap.